All right. Good evening, everyone. How are we doing tonight? Cool. Good to be out here with you. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, 2 Corinthians, one of the first letters in the New Testament, uh, 10th chapter. That's where we'll be tonight. Uh, we'll be in uh, one of our final uh, sermons in this series we've done called Rhythm and Ruin, where we've just talked about what it looks to have uh, a life lived in rhythm, a life lived in God's rhythm of what he wants for our life, rather than ruin, rather than collapsing in on ourselves like this culture is so prone to pull us into. And so uh, what we've done is each night we've looked at a rule. And we've looked at a rule for living, a rule for following Jesus, a rule that God has woven into the fabric of the universe. And my hope for you each and every night is that you would see this isn't just some clever rule we're coming up with. This is something deeply rooted in the scriptures, deeply rooted in God's word, because my opinion on these things or what I say on these things ultimately doesn't matter if it doesn't align with God's word. So again, I want you to have that open on your phone. If you bring a Bible with you, that's wonderful too. Uh, if you're watching online, we're so glad you're with us, so thrilled that we're able to broadcast this, looking forward to the day when everyone can be back on campus with us uh, and grateful for those of you who have chosen to be here tonight. So again, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, or chapter 10, we'll start in verse 1, uh, but I want to share with you the rule first. The rule is very simple for those of you taking notes, and it's this. What consumes your mind controls your life. What consumes your mind controls your life. This is one of those sentences that, that's not literally found in Scripture, okay? I'm going to show you this idea tonight that what's going on in your mind will ultimately control your behavior, your actions, your emotions, and your relationships and everything. But what I want you to know, I want you to memorize this sentence, that what consumes my mind controls my life. I want to show this to you tonight because I believe it's significant that you get a hold of your mind, of your thoughts of what runs through your head on a daily basis, of the thoughts that tend to just tumble around up there in your noggin. I think it's important that you get a hold of that if you want to live in the kind of rhythm that God has for you. So again, we're gonna be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse one. Here's how it begins. Paul is writing, he says, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when you are away, but bold toward you when you are away. Now, if you're reading the text, if you see it on the screens, if you have it in your Bible, you'll realize Paul is talking to the Corinthians. He says, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul. And then it says in, in, in quotes, like scare quotes, right? Who is timid when I'm with you, but, and then in quotes again, bold when you're away. And so what's going on here? Here's what's happening. Paul has actually visited the Corinthians. He's been with them in person. He helped plant the church and get it started. But now he's no longer with them. And that's actually most of the letters in the New Testament are, I was with you at one point, now I'm not with you, but I'm writing to remind you of the truth that I told you when I was there. This is this great reminder that in the scriptures, there's really not a lot of emphasis on here's some brand new thing you've never heard. And it's the same way with our sermons. Like the goal is not that you would come here and hear some brand new insight that no one's ever heard before, but rather you would be reminded of the truths that God has taught you and wants to remind you over and over and over again. So here's Paul writing to a group of people he's already been with. But these group of people, they, they've somehow gotten into their minds that Paul is sort of this two-faced kind of person. And here's their complaint against Paul. Paul, when you're here, you don't seem super bold. You don't actually seem like a very good speaker. You're not super powerful. You're not overwhelming us with your rhetoric. But then when you write these letters, it seems like you're super bold. So what gives here, Paul? See, their critique against Paul is really simple. Their critique is that when Paul is with them in person, that he is timid. But when he's away from them, he's bold. And here's the assumption they make. The assumption they make, the assumption they're making 
is that to be bold in person, to be strong in a conversation, when you're with a person, to overwhelm them with rhetoric and words is the meaning of what it means to be a strong communicator and the meaning of what it means to have a good relationship. But here's what Paul understands. I think Paul understands something really profound here. And you'll see it in the very beginning of the verse. You'll see these two words. Paul is going to justify the fact that when he is in front of them, he's not overwhelming them with how great a speaker he is by using these two words. He appeals to the nature of Christ and he says, by the humility and gentleness of Christ. The humility and gentleness of Christ. So here was the assumption in the Corinthian church. The assumption was if someone's speaking the truth, they'll overwhelm you with how powerful they are. And what Paul understands is something utterly different is true. See, they want the type of conversation where the person who's deemed right is the more powerful, strong, and overwhelming presence. And here's a truth that Paul understands. He played this out when he was planting the church in Corinth. I want you to know this. It's that humility and gentleness are the soil in which healthy conversations grow. This is what Paul understands. The humility and gentleness, these two attributes he points out about Jesus are the soil in which healthy conversations can grow. And this is true about your life as well. If you wanna think about your mind and how you think and how you process the world and what goes on with your thoughts, you're going to have to become the type of person who enters into every conversation you have with two things, with humility and with gentleness. With humility and gentleness. Here's what humility is. You step into a conversation where you disagree with someone. It may be a philosophical disagreement. It may just be a disagreement about how to do something. But here's what humility says. Humility says, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. I might not have this right. I might not have all of the answers right here. I might be wrong. And gentleness says this. Gentleness says, you might be wrong, but I'm going to give you the space to have this conversation with me anyway. Humility and gentleness are at the core of what it means for us to have conversations that can help us grow. I want us to think about where this plays out in this world. I want us to think about all of the ways the lack of humility and gentleness destroy good conversations. Think about politics for a moment. Like think about politicians who are debating. Think about politicians who are discussing things on national television. Could you imagine how absolutely astounding it would be if this fall there was a debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump And the commentators afterwards were like, okay, you get two words to describe the debate. And the two words are humility and gentleness, right? Like this is not going to happen, right? Like like that's not what we're going to see because that's not treasured in politics. It's not treasured in our public discourse. It's not thought of as something to aspire to. It's actually thought of as weakness. To have humility and gentleness is thought of as weakness. And child of God, you need to know that that is not weakness. It is strength. It's strength. Like when you have a conversation with someone, when you disagree with someone, when you're discussing ideas with someone, the strongest person in the room is the person who is willing to be humble and willing to be gentle. And the weakest person in the room is the person who has to bully everyone into silence because their argument can't hold itself. That's the weakest person in the room. I I want us to be the type of church, the type of place That when we discuss things with people who disagree with us, when we discuss ideas in the world, we are marked by a kind of humility and gentleness that defines us. I want that to be true in our discussions in small groups. I want that to be true when you're talking about theology. Do you know how ludicrous it is that Christians argue about theology in a way that's not humble or gentle? Do you know how absolutely insane it is that Christians yell and mean and are screaming angry and prideful about talking about theology? Like that's insane. And yet this is what Christians so often end up doing. We end up talking about the things of God without humility, without gentleness, and it destroys our ability to think right. 
If you want to have the type of mind that thinks about the world in the right way, you need to approach people, conversations, and ideas with humility and gentleness. Here's a few phrases uh, that I would love to hear more here in young adults that I would love to hear out of your lips that I think you uh, might use as you approach things in life. Here's here's one phrase. Um, Might you say to someone, that's an interesting opinion. How did you come to believe that? Like, so you talk to someone and they have an opinion and you think the opinion's insane, but rather than saying, how could you be so stupid to believe that? You go, that's an interesting opinion. How did you come to believe that one? Maybe this is another way you could approach it. I'm not sure I agree with that, but would you be up for explaining why you do? Like this is a way of approaching conversation that says, listen, I'm not even on the same page as you, but I respect you as a person. I have the kind of gentleness that allows you to speak. I have the humility that says I might actually be wrong. So would you explain why? I've said this to people. I'm struggling with what you said, but maybe you can help me understand. Help me understand is one of the greatest phrases you can start to use with people when you think their idea is crazy. You just go, okay, I'm not, I'm not agreeing with you right now, but can you help me understand why that's the case? And then here's the final sentence you might say to someone. You might say, hey, listen, would you be open to hearing a different perspective on this? Uh, again, the goal isn't to dunk on people. The goal isn't to win. The goal isn't to destroy the other person in the argument. The goal is to have the kind of conversation where you actually listen to people, where humility and gentleness are the soil in which that conversation grows up. See, this is what the people were complaining about for Paul. They said, he's not overwhelming us. He's not dunking on us. He's not showing us how strong he is. And therefore they started to doubt the authority of his ministry. And Paul is saying, listen, there is something that defines me and it's not my strength. It's the humility and the gentleness of Christ. It goes on this way in verse two. And that I just want to apologize to everyone here. Um, maybe up in this section, you don't hear everyone here. We usually turn that thing off. I'm not sure why it's on. And if it's bothering you, my deepest apologies, Brian, let's fix that by next week. We'll get it done. Everyone up there. Good for you. All right. (laughs) Sorry. That wasn't very gentle at all or humble. Okay. Verse two. I beg you, I beg you that when I come to you, I may not have to be as bold except towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. So here's Paul and he goes, listen, I'm going to come back to you. So again, he's planted this church and then he's left and he's writing these letters over to the Corinthians, but he's going to come back to them and visit. And he understands that when he visits, he's going to come to them and he's going to speak with boldness. But here's what's so clear and obvious for the Corinthian church, that Paul is not a good speaker. This is actually something fascinating. If you know the Bible at all, you know Paul and how famous he is and how many churches he planted and how much of the New Testament he wrote and all of these things. But here's what we're learning here for the first time in the scriptures. Paul's not actually a very good speaker. Paul's not actually valued as this like incredible preacher who everyone thinks is so amazing. In fact, they think he's kind of timid. They don't think he's very impressive. And here's what the Corinthians fall into. They fall into the same kind of mistake that some of us fall into. And it's a mistake that existed in the ancient world. Let me tell you, it exists in our world as as well today. And here's the mistake. The mistake is to think that if someone is a good speaker, then what they say must be true. The mistake is to think that good speaker equals true ideas and bad speakers equal untrue ideas. This is the mistake we make all the time. But here's what Paul is reminding us of here. Here's what I see here as I read about Paul in the scripture. I'm reminded of this, that great speakers often have terrible ideas. That people who are really good at talking often have terrible, terrible, terrible ideas that should be rejected no matter how forceful or clever or winsome they present those ideas in The great speakers often have terrible ideas, and the inverse is true. The terrible speakers often have great ideas, 
Like this is a reality that sometimes people are not good speakers and yet they have wisdom, they have insight, they have knowledge, they are worth listening to. And, And hear me, so much of the dysfunction that happens in our world, in your friend group, in your school, in churches happens because people start to listen to good speakers thinking good speaker equals true idea and bad speaker equals bad ideas. Like, listen, some of you are in college or in grad school right now. And some of you have professors who have terrible ideas. They are preaching things that are foolish. They they are illogical, things that don't hold up at all. But they're very good at presenting it. And so they present it in this really persuasive kind of way. And you're moved by it because they're a good speaker. But it's a terrible idea. And others of you have professors who aren't that dynamic. They're not that exciting. They're kind of monotone when they speak. But don't make the foolish mistake of thinking because they're not a great speaker, they don't have something wise to say. See, see the mistake the Corinthians were making with Paul is they thought you're not a very overwhelming speaker. You're not really interesting. You're not really funny. You're not really good at talking. So we're not going to listen to you. And I don't want you to make the same mistake. I don't want you to make the same mistake in your school. I don't want you to make the same mistake in your your politics and the way you see politicians. I don't want you to make the same mistake at Thanksgiving dinner. You know Thanksgiving dinner? where everyone disagrees on everything and it's just awkward over turkey for hours, like Thanksgiving dinner. We're all looking forward to that, right? Months from now, we're gonna go to Thanksgiving and there's gonna be someone at the table who's really loud or really good at talking or really good at arguing about things. And ultimately what tends to happen is the person who's really loud or arguing or really bold in this tends to seem right. But just because that person's loud, just that that person argues well, doesn't mean they are correct. Like the same thing is true in your friend group. I bet you some of you have friends who are really quiet and they're not very good at articulating things. They're not really good at speaking. They're not really bold. They're not really assertive with their opinions, but they're actually the person you should be listening to. I actually want to challenge some friend group here. I I don't know who I'm picking on here, but someone needs to hear this tonight, that you might have a friend who's not really able to articulate things as quickly and as boldly and as loudly, but you need to listen to her because she has wisdom. You need to listen to him because he has something, an insight. He has something to say to you. See, see, here's what Paul is running into. He's running into this idea that just because someone says something well, it means they're absolutely true. And if someone doesn't speak well, they don't have truth. Uh, I need you to understand that this is the same thing is true for me, okay? Like here I am, I'm preaching. I don't know what you assess of my preaching style, okay? Some of you are like, you're great. And some of you are like, you're terrible. We're here for the music. And I'm like, great, right? Like, like I'm fine with that. But here's the truth. You should not assess the truth of what I'm saying by how well I say it. That does not make something true. It does not make it true if I'm funny or if I'm winsome or if I speak loud or fast or if I have a lot of cute metaphors. That doesn't make something true. It might be pointing to a truth, but what makes something true isn't how good it sounds, it's how sound it is. That's what makes something true. But like here's perhaps just some instruction for you tonight. Would you assess every idea based on whether or not it is sound rather than how it sounds? Would you assess ideas that go on in your life, ideas that you hear in culture, not on how clever it sounds, but on whether or not it is sound? This is the mistake the Corinthians are making. They think because Paul's not a good speaker, they don't need to listen to what he has to say. And Paul goes, that is a foolish road in life to only listen to clever people who speak well. He goes on this way in verse three. He says, for for though we live in the world, we do not wage war, war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. So three times in these two verses, in verse three and verse four, he mentions the world. 
And when the scriptures mention the world, what it means is the systems of the world, the way the world functions outside of the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. It's the way culture operates. It's the way nations operate. It's the way power and business and money operates. And here's what Paul is trying to make a contrast between. There is a way of thinking and talking and acting and approaching ideas that are worldly, and there's a way of thinking and talking and having conversation and approaching ideas that are of Christ. And this is the contrast he's trying to make. And I think if you dig right to the bottom of all of it, here's what you'll find. The contrast between the world and followers of Jesus is this. The fundamental command, the fundamental tool of the world are these two words. Be right. This is what people in the world want to be. They want to be right. But for the follower of Jesus, your call in this life, you need to hear me so clearly, is not to be right. Your call is to be righteous. Your call is not to be right all the time. It is to be righteous. And righteousness might actually include being right, but it is not sufficient. The weapon of the world is to always be right, to always have the upper hand, to always win the argument, to always be victorious, but that is not the call for the follower of Jesus. Like you need to hear me so clearly. As Christians, we heap shame upon ourselves when we are more interested in being right than we are in being righteous. And more importantly, we heap shame upon the name of Jesus, our Savior, the one who should be a bright light to the world. We heap shame upon his name when we are more interested in being right than we are in being righteous. Well, let, me, let me put it to you this way. So um, two, three weeks ago, um, I, I stood on this stage um, and, and with our senior pastor, Sean Thornton, talked about um, our position as a church and kind of how we're doing church. And y'all are the example of how we're doing church tonight, right? Like we're outside, the mass, the distancing, the whole bit, right? Like that's how we're doing church. And then two weeks later, um, the Ventura County Star gets a hold of us and, and says, we'd love to do an article about your church and kind of how you guys are doing church. And we said, that, that sounds great. And so they did the article. But then you might not know this, is last week there was a photographer here on Thursday night from the Ventura County Star taking pictures of you. So you, you guys are famous now. You were on the, you were in the paper, congratulations on your newfound fame. Um, but you were there and, and there were pictures of you and all of this happened. And so between that sermon we gave about why we're doing things the way we're doing things and, and between that article coming out, um, there's been a lot of communication coming into my inbox, into my social media, into my text messages. Like a lot of people have a lot of opinions about what we're doing. And some of you people and some of you people online have been very encouraging you said, yes, keep it up. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep focused. Keep making disciples. And it's been just like water to a thirsty person. Like truly, every time you affirm us in this season, it's just like, yes. Because here's the trouble. A lot of people don't like what we're doing. A lot of people have opinions. And let me say this. There are some people who don't like what we're doing and they have expressed it in a loving, kind, gracious, but firm way. They've emailed me. Some of you have emailed me. Some of you listening online have emailed me and you've said, we disagree and here's why, but we love you and we're praying for you and we're with you. And to those of you that have done that, I rejoice in you. Because listen, we've never asked for a church where everyone agrees, all right? We've just never asked for that. We've asked for a church where everyone's eyes are on Jesus and we can disagree and love each other anyway. We can bear with one another. But listen to me, um, some people have disagreed in such a way that is kind and gracious and firm and others have taken a different route. But like, I just want you to hear me. In the last two weeks, I've been called a fool, an idiot, a moron, part of the problem. I've been called weak. I've been called pathetic. I've been called a tool of Gavin Newsom's liberal agenda for California. I've been called a Marxist. I've been called a pushover, and this is my favorite one. I've been called a little bit naive. <laughs> Not a lot, but just, just a little, right? 
You know what the tragedy is? Every single one of those insults came from Christians. That's the tragedy. Every single one of those insults came from people who claim the name of Jesus. And listen, we may look back 10 years from now and realize that the people who wanted us to do church differently were right. Those people who made those arguments, they might actually be right. But the way they conducted themselves was not righteous. This is what we need to know as people of God. As the people of God, our goal is not just to be right. We can be right and do it in such a way that has no love, no compassion, no charity, no value for the other person, no unity in Christ. And actually in being right, we find ourselves being wrong. Like, let me put it to you this way. You may be right, but if you lack love, you are in the wrong. You may be right, but if you present it in such a way that is unloving, unkind, ungracious, not valuing the other human being in front of you, you will find yourself in the wrong. And and listen, I'm not painting myself as some victim here. I've done this. I've done this in theological conversations where I'm talking to another church or another pastor or another person and I've just treated them like trash because they don't believe what I believe. And I'm obviously right because you need to know this. I'm always right 100% of the time and they're 100% wrong. And and so I do this, right? Like I do this to people. But, But listen, like there's no more tragedy than when I do this to my wife, Right? Like if you're in a girlfriend-boyfriend relationship, if you're engaged, if some of, you, some of you are married who are here, you know this, right? Like in a marriage, you can be right or you can be happy, but you can't be both, okay? This is true marriage wisdom. You can be like, I'm right and you're wrong and I'm gonna destroy you in this argument. And here's the truth. You get into an argument where the goal is to win, to be right, to dominate the other person, and there's only two outcomes. One outcome is you try to dominate and you lose and look stupid, okay? That's one outcome. Here's the second outcome. I'm trying to be right with my wife. I'm trying to show her that I'm right. And I humiliate her and I show her how terrible he is. I'm right and you're wrong. And here's what it is. Now I'm married to someone who's humiliated. Either way, I lose. Either way, if I pursue being right over being righteous, I lose in that moment. And I want you to hear this, Christian. Child of God, you have opinions on everything. That's beautiful. You're probably right about some of them. You're probably wrong about some of them. But would you value being righteous over being right? Would you value the other person in front of you over being right? Like the child of God is not called to dunk on other people, especially other children of God. Let's be that kind of place where we can disagree, where we can see each other for who we are, where we can allow people to be right and be wrong because we're more interested in the righteousness. And if you're like, what's righteousness? Righteousness is doing the right thing before God. Righteousness is the fruit of the spirit. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is righteousness. Let's be the type of place that values righteousness over being right. And let me just clarify in case someone's missing this. I'm not saying there is no right, Okay. Like in case someone's like, he doesn't believe in absolute truth. Get out of here. Okay, like I absolutely, I'm sorry, that wasn't gentle or uh, (laughs) I'm a work in progress. I am, but I really mean this. Like, listen, I absolutely believe in absolute truth. I believe in the truth of the scripture. I believe in right and wrong. I believe in all of these things. But, But listen, I absolutely believe that there is a way of going about it that your argument may be right, but you're in the wrong. And that's what I'm challenging us toward tonight, to be those type of people who talk to other people, especially other Christians, in a way that values righteousness over being right. Uh, let's go on this way in verse 4. Um, it says that we're, we have this divine power in verse, uh, the back half of verse 4. And this divine power, it says, is just these three words, to demolish strongholds. 
And Paul is going to turn to this metaphor of actually a battle, of warfare, of military metaphor. A stronghold was like if in the middle of the city, you would build a tower with these really thick walls. And if you got invaded, everyone would run into the stronghold. And in the scriptures, strongholds are sometimes actually a good place. Like God is our fortress. He's our stronghold. He's the one we hide in. But other times in the scriptures, strongholds are a bad place. Strongholds are something that need to be taken down. Strongholds are something that stand against the things of God. And that's what Paul's describing here. There are these strongholds that exist in your life and in mine. And what we are called to do is fight with this divine power, this Holy Spirit that's inside of us to demolish strongholds. Let me define a stronghold for you. A stronghold is a spiritual power that shapes how we think, feel, and act. A stronghold is a spiritual power. It's something that exists with inside of us, in our heart, in our mind, in our soul, in our body, that shapes how we think and feel and act. And usually it's without us even knowing it. Like, like let me put it this way to you. So um, it was last summer, summer of 2019, June um, was the month, and I was here at work, and my wife was with my daughter at the time she was um, one years old. She's with my daughter, they're at the park. She's playing on the park, uh, and then she's coming down one of the stairs, and as she's coming down the stairs, she falls forward from the stairs and hits her chin on the ground in the playground. And suddenly there's like blood everywhere. And when you've got a one-year-old toddler and there's blood everywhere, you panic, okay? That's the only reaction that's natural. If you don't panic, there's something wrong with you. You panic. So my wife calls me and she says, you got to get to the hospital. So I drive to the hospital. She's driving to the hospital. We meet at Los Robles. We're at the hospital. I pick up my daughter. She's still bleeding. There's blood everywhere. It's terrible. So we go, okay, we're going to bring her into the ER right now. We bring her to the emergency room. We show her to the nurse and it's never good when they go, oh, you know, like, like they're nurses. They do this all day and they go, oh, and, and, and we looked at her and she said, listen, I think you should do a repair here. And I didn't know repair meant stitches. I was like, what, I don't, what does that mean? They're like stitches. Okay, here we go. So we go into the room where they're going to operate, where they're going to do the stitches. And she's sitting there and she's actually calmed down at this point. There's blood everywhere, but she's kind of finally calm. And then the doctor comes in and says, we're going to do the stitches, but there's two things I need you to know. One is I can only have one parent here. So I looked at my wife and she looked at me and she goes, get out of here. And she said, get out of here because she's way stronger than me. She knew I was going to cry, right? And, and so they they lay my daughter down and my wife's standing there and I have to stand like 30 feet away, like behind a curtain, like peering in to see what happens. And this is the worst part of the story. And it's, you know, those moments like you'll never forget. Like this is one of those for me. There's a sound I'll never forget. And the sound is how my daughter responded when they took this massive needle to numb her chin and stuck it into her chin. It, it, I just couldn't get over it. Like, it wasn't like, oh, I think I'm going to cry. It's like, oh, I'm crying. Like, this is happening right now. And they fix her up. They put 12 stitches in her chin. And she finally gets better. And we get her out of there. And it is this horrible, terrible moment. And listen, um, a week later, the stitches came out. The scar is almost gone now. You can barely tell where it is. And so you would think that would be the end of the story. But here's the truth. It's not the end of the story. It's not how the story ends for her. It, it was like a week ago. Maybe it was like Tuesday of this week. We were playing a game in our house and the game is a really complex game called Chase. And it's where my daughter runs and I chase her everywhere, endlessly around the house. And we just run, 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 run. She's running, running, running. She's running onto the carpet and she trips over the carpet. And as she's falling, her face goes right into the wall chin first. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty brutal. So what I do, my first thought is, oh no, like she split up. Like I go back over there to see if she split it back open and there's no blood and, and there's nothing. And she's crying because she's in pain, but she's starting to catch her breath. But then she sees me examining her chin. And in the moment she sees me examining her chin, she starts to panic. She starts to sob. She starts to go, no, 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 no. 
Why is she doing that? Because in her little two-year-old brain, she thinks every time she hits her chin, she has to go get a shot in the chin and get stitches. That's how she thinks. Now listen, that's not an example of stronghold, but it is an illustration, right? Well, like the fact that every single time my daughter falls and hits her chin, she thinks that means I have to go get a shot and stitches and it's going to be miserable and the most painful thing ever. That is locked into her little brain. It's this little thing that happened to her one time in her life, but it's so locked into her brain that every time she falls, she thinks I have to go get stitches now. And that's what a stronghold looks like. A stronghold. It's a spiritual idea. It's a spiritual pattern. It's a spiritual presence that locks itself into your soul or your heart or your mind in such a way that shapes the way you think and interact with the world. It shapes the way you feel. And tonight I want to talk to you about what Paul has to say about strongholds. Paul says this, we tear down, we demolish every stronghold. And I want to talk to you about the strongholds that must be destroyed, that must be destroyed in your life. If you want to be a follower of Jesus who walks in rhythm rather than ruin, there are strongholds in your life that must be destroyed. And what I kind of want to do is just speak for a while about those strongholds. And I want to speak to some of you because I believe some of you need to hear this tonight in such a way that you've never heard it before. Uh, Some of you need to understand tonight that there's been a stronghold in your life. There has been a power, a spiritual power that has been shaping how you think and feel and act and you haven't even realized it. Strongholds that must be destroyed. Here's the first is ideas that you believe. Ideas that you believe. Like, like, do you know that some of you, your mom, when you were like really young, looked at you and said, you're not smart enough, and you've believed that for your entire life? So you've just always believed you're dumb because when you were seven, your mom at one point sort of said you weren't smart? And so you've always believed that was going to be the case. That's a stronghold that has taken over. It's this idea that's lodged itself in your mind. And so every time you're asked to do something at work or in school, you say, no, I couldn't do that because I'm not smart enough. When the truth is you're plenty smart. Like, do you know that some of you have this thing where you always need to be in control and you always need to be in control because it's your defense mechanism because sometime in your life you were hurt, you were neglected, you were manipulated, you were abused in such a way that now every time you feel out of control, you react and you respond in such a way where you try to control. It's a stronghold. It's a stronghold over your life. Do you know that some of you, for some reason, at a young age, and I don't know if it was a Disney movie or your parents' story or something that you heard when you were young, but you became convinced of this idea that you'll never be happy until you're married? And so you've just kind of believed that? Like that idea just kind of rolls around in your brain and you just keep thinking, I'm not happy because I'm not married, so I need to get married, so I need to find a guy or I need to find a girl. Like that idea has lodged itself. There are strongholds in the form of ideas that some of you have absorbed and believed and integrated into your personality. And if you're going to be a follower of Jesus who walks in his rhythms, you're going to have to tear down that stronghold. You're going to have to make war on that idea. There's ideas we believe. Listen, there's patterns we practice. Let me speak to some of you and let me get personal. I think some of you get drunk every Friday night. I'm just guessing. I'm not picking on anyone. I don't know your story. I'm just, my guess is for some of you, you just drink really heavily one day a week. You're not even sure you know why. Maybe it's like a hangover thing. Hangover, that's a bad word. Uh, maybe it's like a thing that's stuck around from college and you've just kind of always done it, but you always do it and you're not even sure why you do it. Or every time you hang out with this person, all you do is just drink until you can't see straight. And so it's just become this pattern in your life. For some of you, there's certain times of day or certain times of the week that you always return to the well of pornography. Like it's not even like this choice you make anymore. It's just become this pattern, this habit that you just do over and over and over and over again. 
For, for others of you, every time you get intimate in a relationship and every time someone starts to know you and care about your life, you run away because you would rather be the one who runs, runs away than get one who gets abandoned. And it's this pattern that shows up over and over again. So every time you get in a small group or every time a girl starts to like you or every time you actually start to have a friend that's meaningful in your life, you run away. There are patterns in some of your lives. And if you want to be a healthy follower of Jesus who is walking in the rhythm that God has for you, you've got to tear those patterns down. You've got to make war on them. I am not here tonight to tell you to make peace with those things in your life. I'm here to tell you to make war with them, to tear down those strongholds. There's ideas you believe, there's patterns you live in, there's shame you live in. Like some of you are still living in the shame of a decision you made a decade ago. Some of you made a decision that was so horrible and so terrible that you just constantly live in it. And so what you're constantly doing is building your life in such a way that no one will ever find out about it. Some of you are living in the shame of something you think God could never forgive of you. Some of you are here tonight and maybe you're actually under the belief that you're here, but you don't think God wants you here because of the shame you've lived in because a mistake you made, a person you hurt, a person you let down. But like for some of you, shame is a stronghold and it just sits heavy on you like a darkness, like a cloud, like a mist that just can never be lifted. And I'm not calling you to make peace with that shame. I'm calling you to make war with it. For some of you, it's temptation you face and you just think that temptation's always gonna be there and it's never gonna go away and it's always gonna be this bad and you're always gonna give in. Don't you dare make peace with your temptation. Make war with it. Go to battle against it. Tear down that stronghold. It has no place in your life. Christ died on the cross that you might be made whole, that your sins might be forgiven, that your shame might be lifted, that you might walk in the fullness of victory in Jesus Christ where you're able to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't die so that you would live in that shame and that temptation. And finally, is the feelings you experience. Like for some of you, your feelings, your emotions just rip you apart over and over and over again. There is no overcoming your feelings and they drive your decisions and they drive your life and they drive your future. And it is something that has taken over. And again, I'm not calling you to make peace with these strongholds. I'm calling you to make war. Say, I'm going to make war against them. Paul uses the words, we demolish strongholds. So it's not just like we try to ignore them or get around them. We destroy them. We get rid of them in every way so that they no longer have the power and place and position that they have in your life. I don't know who I'm speaking to tonight, and I don't know who needs to understand that there's some kind of stronghold that's taken up root in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, in your body. But if I'm talking to you tonight, here, here's what I want to do, including those of you online right now. I, I want to give you how Paul continues. And here's what I believe he gives us. I believe he gives us two ways we attack and demolish these strongholds. And, and these aren't two easy ways. These aren't two simple ways, but they are powerful ways. So I want you to listen closely to what Paul has to say next on how we demolish, how we attack, how we make war on these strongholds, these spiritual powers that have taken up residence in our life. Here's step one, if I can put it this way. In verse five, he says this, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Here's the first thing we do. We demolish arguments. And the arguments aren't other people. Like this isn't a contradiction of earlier. It's not like now you go demolish people. Like that's not what this is. This is you demolish the arguments and the arguments you need to demolish are the arguments that exist within you first. How do you tear down the strongholds that are going on you? You need to attack the strongholds, the ideas that are in your mind with the truth of the word of God. It says here, with the knowledge of God. See, one of the most profound and beautiful things about the Christian faith is that we have knowledge of God. We don't have to guess what God's like. 
Sometimes people are like, what do you think about God? And it's like, I don't have to think about God. I know what the God is like. I'm told what God is like. God speaks. The absolutely beautiful thing about the Christian faith is this, that we believe in a God who speaks. Don't lose sight of that. Don't miss that. God speaks and he has something to say to you. And some of you have no idea what God has to say to you because you've never actually listened. And I believe God speaks through whispers and I believe God speaks through your heart and I believe God speaks through other people and I believe all of that. But I ultimately believe the authoritative word of God comes to us through the scriptures. It comes to us through the Bible. How do you tear down the stronghold that's existing in your life? You become serious about the Bible. You love the Bible, treasure the Bible, talk about the Bible, study the Bible, think about the Bible. Because the knowledge of God This knowledge of God is what we use to demolish the arguments, demolish the strongholds, tear down the spiritual powers that exist within our heart and our life. Four ways we do this. Four ways we use the Bible. Number one, it's very simple. Read the Bible. Just read it. How often? As often as you can. Like, like what should my Bible reading plan be? Whichever one you'll actually do. What version of the Bible should I read? Whichever one you'll actually read. Like, like there's no rules to this. There's no like, if you're a real Christian, you'll read the ESV, the one-year Bible study. Like, there's nothing. There's just read the word of God. Listen to what he has to say. You read it regularly. You read it even if you don't feel like you're getting anything out of it. Like, here's how I try to put Bible reading sometimes. Sometimes I read the Bible and it blows me away. I'm just like, that's exactly what I needed today. But, but can I just be honest? I mean, again, maybe you've never heard a pastor say this. Sometimes I read the Bible and I go, amen. I'm not sure why I needed that, but okay. But you know what? I know God's working. Like we just sang it. Why can't you believe it? Like even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Like that's what God does. It's like taking vitamins. Like you have never taken a calcium supplement and been like, yes, that's how it works, right? Like you've never taken a vitamin and been like, I feel so healthy right now just feel like my full self like you never do that that's that's not how it works right like you take it and the idea is over time it makes you the type of person who's healthy the same is true with the scriptures sometimes it's going to blow you away and sometimes it's just what you needed even though you didn't know you needed it right now that's why the bible is not called our daily steak right it's called our daily bread It's not supposed to always be this like, whoa, I can't believe, I never knew this in the Bible. Sometimes you read something and it's just a good reminder of what's true. But I tell you, if you want to tear down the strongholds in your life, you've got to get over the idea that you won't read the Bible unless you have this like magical feeling in your gut. Read it. Read the Bible. Number two, study the Bible. But like, not just like read it and kind of put it away or read a little devotional and think like, study it, wrestle it to the ground. Read the Bible with a highlighter and a pencil and circle things and underline things and invest in a study Bible. Some of you have invested like a hundred times as much in your cell phones that you have in your Bibles over your life. Some of you will spend more on dinner tonight after YA than you will on a study Bible. You look at a study Bible, you're like 60 bucks, that's crazy. And then you go like drop a hundred bucks on the weekend at some restaurant. I'm telling you, get a study Bible, read it, think about it, study it with the same intensity you study other things. Like, like let me put it this way. I was, I was talking to a group of people recently, and we were talking about the fact that um, there's like a way we study things when it's important to us. Uh, and we were talking about this. Um, I, I, gentlemen, I'm sure some of you do this, but ladies, I'm going to pick on you tonight if you don't mind terribly. Um, uh, ladies, I want you to imagine the moments in your life um, where you've gotten the text message from the guy. And I don't mean like your friend, like, oh, he's like a friend. Like, not that guy. Like, like the, the guy you're interested in, right? The guy you're kind of into. And you get the text. And you get the text. And it's not like a single thing. It's like the scrolling text. You're like, oh, 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 oh. 
Oh, there's more, right? Now, ladies, here's what I've learned. I'm a married man, and I've, I've learned all the secrets, okay? I've, I've, learned, the, I've, I've learned the whole inside game. Um, here's what happens so often. Um, ladies, you get this super long text from this guy, and, and here's what you don't do. You're not like, hmm, let me just sit in silence and think about this. Maybe you do that at the beginning, but then you go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call together every friend I've ever known, and I'm going to hand them my phone, and I'm going to show them the deepest, darkest, most vulnerable thing that anyone's ever sent me, this wow, this powerful thing where he poured out my heart, and I'm going to show it to everyone. And then we're going to discuss it. And then we're going to discuss it another time. And then we're going to read it in different tones so that we might hear different inflections of what this guy has to say. Am I picking on it? Like, no, none of you ever do this, okay? But like, I've heard some girls do this sometimes. But here's my question. Do you spend more time picking up and analyzing on the text of a guy than you do of the text of the Holy Word of God? Like, do you do that? Like, like and I just wonder, I, I just wonder for some of you, um, Again, over the years, I've just heard this, like the Bible's confusing. And like, listen, I'm the first one to tell you, like, yeah, the Bible's confusing. Sometimes you read it, you're like, what? Like, like that's normal. But here's the truth. You get a confusing text from a guy, you don't go, well, I guess I'll never know, right? You don't do that. You study it, you think about it, you talk about it, you get in a group of people and talk about it. That's what Bible study is. That's what we do when we study the Bible. We look at a confusing thing, we go, let's wrestle this to the ground because it matters to us. Someone needs to hear tonight that the God of the universe has written you a letter and you would be absolutely foolish not to absorb that into your heart and soul and mind and strength. Study the Bible. Read the Bible. Here's the next one. Memorize the Bible. Memorize it. Constantly. Think about it. You, you should have a ver- Bible verse, a memory verse that you're kind of like, okay, I'm going to work on memorizing this one right now. Like, like I, I may not be perfect at this. I may not be great at this, but I'm going to try to memorize it. Bible memory isn't something for children. It's something for everyone who follows Jesus. Memorize the Bible. Pick a verse. And if you're like, I'm not good at memorizing things, I've already like mocked you endlessly for this. Like if I started singing Firework from Katy Perry, which came out like 12 years ago, you would tell me every word, right? And then you're like, I just can't memorize things, right? Like you memorize all kinds of things. You know all kinds of things. You have it locked away in your memory. And here's the holy word of God. And the scriptures say, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. To, to memorize the word of God is to make war on the strongholds in your life. And someone needs to hear that tonight. Someone needs to begin memorizing scripture, not just reading it, not just talking about it, but memorizing. And then here's the final thing. Um, Talk about the Bible. Talk about the Bible in a small group. Talk about the Bible with your friends. If you're dating someone, there's no reason that occasionally you shouldn't just be at date night and just kind of sitting over food and go, hey, what, what Bible verse has been meaningful to you lately? Like, like, this is the thing is like a husband and wife, my wife and I, there's times we realize like we spent like weeks and we haven't even talked about the Bible. Like we've both been studying it on our own, but we've never come together and been like, God taught me this. Or I realized this, or I saw this insight. Talk about the Bible, text Bible verses to people, post Bible verses saying, hey, what do you think about this? Be the type of person that just generates Bible talk all around you. Not because that makes you a special, better Christian than anyone else, but because there is a war to be waged against the stronghold, not only in your heart, but in the heart of your best friends, of your roommates, of your boyfriend, of your mom, of your sister. Read the Bible, study the Bible, memorize the Bible. Talk about the Bible. This is how we make war. I want to make an observation, and this observation is broad. And listen, you may find an exception to this, but I've not found one yet. Here's my observation. I have never met a strong Christian who doesn't take the Bible seriously. I never have. Never met someone who's just booming in their faith, filled with courage and filled with the holiness of God, who doesn't take the word of God seriously. They may miss a day of Bible study. They may have an occasional time where they just kind of fall off track. But I'm just saying they take the word of God seriously. And hear me. I've never met a weak Christian who does. I've never met a Christian who's struggling in their faith and is just ferocious about reading the word and has been for a long, long time. 
And, and again, you may find an exception. I, I just really haven't found that. I found that the deal breaker on whether or not you will win and wage war with your strongholds is whether or not you take the Bible seriously. So this is what Paul says. He says, we demolish arguments. We take every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. This is step one. We get obsessed with the Bible. And then here's step two. This is where we'll close tonight. Step two. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So what's the first thing we do? We know the Bible. We love the Bible. We talk about the Bible. We know the truth of God. We memorize it. We talk about it. We text it to each other. We get obsessed with the Bible. And what's the second thing we do? Paul says it. This is such a powerful phrase for you. Maybe this is a Bible verse you could actually go memorize. We take every thought and we make it captive and make it obedient to Christ. We take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Here's what I want to do. I want to talk about this for the remainder and balance of our time here tonight. Uh, but I want to do so by talking to you first, um, explaining what Paul means by this. Here's what it means to take a thought captive. You notice it, you name it, you study it, and you put it in its place. I'm going to say that again. You notice it, you name it, you study it, you put it in its place. You notice it, you name it, you study it, you put it in its place. Let, let, let me illustrate it this way for you tonight. Um, I would like for you to imagine that you are walking along the road. You're walking down the street. You're walking in your home. You're walking into church. And suddenly you feel something in your shoe, right? And, and there's like something rolling around in there. And you're like, is this a rock? What is, like, what, 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 what's happening there? But it's suddenly getting uncomfortable. I want you to imagine that you feel something in your shoe. What do you do in that moment where you feel something in your shoe? Well, you got two options. Option number one is ignore it and hope it goes away, right? That never works out well for anyone, Okay. That's what's like a general principle in life. Ignore it and hope it goes away never works. But that's what some people do. I'm going to ignore this rock in my shoe and hopefully it'll go away. It never does. What's the second option? You take off your shoe. And what do you do? You take off your shoe. And the first thing you do is you've noticed it, right? You notice there is something in my shoe. And then the second thing you do is you name it. You go, I have a rock in my shoe. I notice it. I named it. Now, someone's like, that rock would never be in your shoe. It's an illustration. People are far away. Come on. Like, you, you notice it. You name it. You study it. You, 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 even if it's a rock, you go like, how did this rock get in my shoe? You notice it. You name it. It's a rock. You study it. How did it get in my shoe? Should I be concerned? Is it a poisonous ride? I don't know, right? You name it. You notice it. You name it. You study it. And then what do you do next? You put it in its rightful place. Does a rock belong in my shoe? Absolutely not. The rock goes away. No rocks. No rocks in my shoe. This is what it means for us to take every thought captive for Jesus Christ. We notice it. We name it. We study it. And then we put it in its rightful place. Let me put it to you this way. So it was the summer of 2008. And I was in college. And its college ended in May. And then I was going to work on a Christian summer camp in June. And in between May and June, I was home for a month. And I was hanging out with friends. And I started to have this weird thought rolling around in my brain. And here was the thought. I don't think anyone likes me. This is the thought. And it wasn't like this, like, oh, woe is me. It was just sort of this, like, I don't think she likes me. I don't think he likes me. I'd hang out with a group of friends and it'd be like a great night. You ever had this? You're like, great night. And then you leave and somehow you feel like there was an awkward moment at the end. You're like, everyone hates me, right? You have this thought. It's rolling around in my brain. It's constant. It wasn't just one night. It wasn't just a low moment. It wasn't just, I was tired. It was every single day. No one likes me. Everyone hates me. I can't believe it. I can't even hang out with people. Maybe no one wants anything to do with me. Maybe I'm useless. Summer 2008, here's what I did. I stopped. I noticed it. Wow, there's this thought going on. I noticed it and then I named it. I think nobody wants me. 
I think everyone's sick of me. I don't think there's anyone in this world. This thought is the thought I'm thinking. I don't think anyone in this world wants anything to do with Brian Howard. I noticed it. I named it. And then here's what I did. I studied it. Why do I think that? Well, maybe it's because I have no friends and everyone hates me, right? Maybe that's our true thought that everyone hates me. Then I went, but but people call me and ask to hang out. And I, I laugh with them. I enjoy it. No, no one really hates me. No one's ever said I hate, like you, you go down the list and you start to study it. You go, okay, I've noticed it. I've named it. I've studied it. And here's what I did. I, I had to eventually go, you know what? This thought keeps rolling into my head and I've noticed it. I've named it. I've studied it and it has no place for me. No place whatsoever. And I toss it away. And every time it comes into my brain, now I just know. I don't even have to name it, study it, place it, anything. I just toss it, Right? Because I know this has no place in my life. I know this has no reality for me. Let me give you a different example, though. Summer of 2017, three years ago, thought starts to roll through my brain. Here's the thought. Brian, you never talk about racial justice issues. You just don't do it. You're a white guy living in a largely white community. You don't talk about it. You don't think about it. It's not in your mind. That thought comes into my mind. And I try to brush it away because most thoughts like that are uncomfortable, right? Just kind of brush it away, brush it away, brush it away. But it keeps coming up. So what did I do in summer of 2017? Well, I reached in and I I noticed it. I I noticed it was a thing and then I named it. And the name of the thought was, Brian, you're uncomfortable talking about these things, but it seems like it's important that you talk about racial justice issues. And and then what did I do next? I studied it. I, I studied this thought. I started to think about it. How can I do this? Or what's making me insecure about this? What's the reason I haven't spoken out about this? What's the reason I haven't posted about it? Am I afraid? Am I insecure? Am I uneducated? What is my problem here? I studied it. And then here's the important part. Then I put it in its place. And here's the temptation. The temptation is, well, this makes me uncomfortable, so I'll chuck it just like everything else. But here's what I realized. If, if the other thought was a rock, this, this one's a coin, okay? Sometimes it's a rock in your shoe, but sometimes it's a coin. And rocks you put in your place, you throw them away. But coins have value. Coins have meaning. Coins add something to your life. So when I noticed it and named it and studied it, here's what I actually had to say. You know what? This isn't something I'm going to toss away. This is something I'm going to make into my life. I'm going to start to grow in this. I'm going to start to think about this. I'm going to integrate this into who I am. See, sometimes we name it and we notice it and we study it and we throw it away. But sometimes we name it and we notice it and we study it and we integrate it into who I am. Let me put it this way. From time to time, this thought comes into my brain and I start to think back on my past and I start to think back on my sin and I start to think back on not just my general sin, but I think about the sexual sin that I've committed in my life. Maybe that sounds weird for you from a pastor because you assume pastors are some sort of super never sinner people. That's not who we are. We're just these imperfect, wrecked people trying to follow Jesus and inviting other people to come along with us. My sin, I think back on what happened with girlfriends, what, what, what kind of pornography was involved in my life. Like, I just think back on those moments. And that shame starts to come on me. And it's like, you're just no good. You're just filthy. You're disgusting, Brian. The thought is, how could you dare get up on a stage after what you've done, after what you've seen, after what you've been a part of? That starts to roll through my brain. And I start to notice it. So what do I do? I notice it. I name it. I say I'm living in the shame of the past of my sexual sin. I'm living in the shame of something Jesus has actually forgiven. I'm living in the shame of something Jesus said I don't have to hold on to anymore. I notice it. I name it. I study it. I think about why is this coming up right now again and what is Satan maybe trying to do? Maybe this is spiritual warfare. Maybe I'm supposed to preach an important message or serve someone or pray for someone in this moment and Satan's trying to throw me off my game. So what do I do with that shame? I put it where it belongs. Get rid of it. There's no place in my life. See, this is what we do. We notice it, we name it, we study it, we place it. Years ago, this was back in high school, I had this thought that was running through my mind and here was the thought, I didn't like it at all. Brian, you're stingy. 
<laughs> you don't give anything to the church at all. You show up at church, you love the programs, you love the people, you think the pastors are great. You just don't give a dime to the work of God through this church at all. This was my thought in high school, and this is what I did. I noticed it because it just kept coming in. I noticed the thought, and then I named it. I named it. I don't give anything to the church. It's not like I don't give a lot. I'm not rich. I don't give a lot. No, no, I give nothing, not even a dollar. I give nothing to the church. I named it. I studied it. I studied my thought. I studied the scriptures. I studied why I gave or didn't give. I studied maybe trust issues I had in the church or trust issues I had about my money. I studied it. And here's what I did. I took that idea and said, this is valuable. Like this is actually something that adds to my life. And I integrated it into my life. 16 years old, decided, okay, I'm just going to start giving to the church in some way. That's how we take every thought captive. Whatever the thought is, whatever the idea is, that rolls through your brain over and over and over again, you notice it. Don't just let it float out there. Notice it and then name it. Because when you name something, it becomes real. But when you name something, it becomes real and that's scary. But when you name something, you actually have power over it. Do you know that that's why the demons never wanted Jesus to name them? Because it was like Jesus had power over them. When you name something, you have power to control it. You limit it. You know the scope of it. You notice it. You name it. And then you study it. You think about it. Maybe you bring other people in on the conversation and then you put it in its rightful place. That might mean integrating it into you. It might mean tossing it. Like, listen, some of you have this constant thought that rolls around your head. I'm not good enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. Notice that thought. Name it. Study it and then throw it into the pit of hell where it belongs, okay? That's what you need to do. Uh, others of you have this thought that rolls through your brain. My mom doesn't like me. My, my sister's not good with me. Maybe my boyfriend's not being faithful to me. Maybe my girlfriend doesn't respect me. Notice it. Name it. Study it. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not true. Bring people into your life who can help you figure out if it's true and you need to keep it or toss it away. Some of you have a thought in your mind. I should start a business. I should go into ministry. I should go back to school. That just keeps popping up in your mind and you're not even sure why. Here's what you're called to do. Take every thought captive for Jesus Christ. Take every thought that rolls through your mind and name it, notice it, study it, and put it in its rightful place. So here's where I want to close with some of you and our, our band's going to make their way up. Um, I don't know what the thought is rolling around in your brain. I don't know what the stronghold is that shapes your emotions and feelings and thoughts and how you operate in this world. Here's what I'm certain of though. You only have two options for how to deal with a persistent thought. You, you've only got two options. Number one is ignore it and watch it gets worse. Number one is to ignore that thought and watch it gets worse. It's to ignore what's going on. It's to pretend it's not there. It's to pretend it's not a real issue. And I'm telling you, it will always get worse if you ignore that thought that's going on. But here's the second issue. Here's the second option. You deal with it and you watch it get better. And this is what I want to call some of you toward tonight. Not to make peace with your sin, but to make war with it. Not to make peace with the fact that there's this thought that's always rolling through your brain and you've never dealt with it, but to deal with it, to notice it, to name it, to study it, and then to place it where it belongs. That's what I want to invite you toward. If you want to be the type of person who lives in God's rhythm, if you want to be the type of person who avoids God's ruin, you, your, your ruin in your life, you need to understand that what controls your mind, what consumes your mind will control your life. And so the invitation for you tonight is simple. Notice what's going on. Name it for what it is. Study it in light of the word of God and then put it where it belongs. I don't know what that means for you. I don't know what that means for your life, for your family, for your future, for your career, but I know that it's worth it, that you would take every thought and make it captive, obedient to Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, thanks for tonight. Thanks for your word. 
God, thanks for the person here who's truly wrestling with something tonight. God, may they drag it before you. May they study it, name it, think about it, place it. God, thanks for the person who's been stirred tonight toward your word. I pray before their head hits the pillow tonight that they would know your word, that they would read the Bible, that they would actually take time to consume their daily bread of your word. God, help us to be a people who don't make peace with our sin, but make war with it. Tear down strongholds, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the power of Jesus' blood shed for us on the cross, the forgiveness offered to us. Help us, God, to be a people who walk freely in you. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name and all God's people said real loud, amen.